Money FM 89.3, best of weekends. Welcome back to Saturday mornings here on Money FM 89.3. Time for our international news review with Steve Oaken. Good morning, Steve. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Neil. Hi, Tricia. Hi, Nora. Hi, Aloysius. <laughs> Hi, Jane. Well, it, it's one big happy family here. Oh. Minus that ki- What was Wait, his you name? missed Rohit. You missed Rohit at all. He's sailing. He's got to take us on his boat one of these days. You guys cut me off. You, you cut me off. I'm trying to bring the Kampong spirit to That's the That's it. Christopher and Rob and, yeah, so many folks. The Kampong spirit. Minus that guy who used to work with us. What was his name? He, don't remember. He, I don't remember. He yep. never brought us tea, though. <laughs> Coffee, I should say. Hey, uh, Steve, the Olympics began. Did you happen to watch the opening ceremony? It was shorter than usual, just over two hours, uh, but did you get to see any of it? Yep. Caught, caught a few highlights. Yep. Uh, not not live, but caught a few highlights. Yep. So what do you make of, okay, a couple of things I got to mention. So two out of the 1,000 torch bearers, one was a, um, a cross-country skier from Xinjiang, a Uyghur, and the other was a, a, a general, uh, not a general, but a, an officer in the uh, People's uh, Liberation Army that was involved in this um, in, in this uh, fracas that they had in, between India where a bunch of uh, people on both sides died. So these two things seem to be making as much or more news uh, than the rest of the opening ceremony. Well, you know, the, the IOC president, Thomas Bach, said the Olympic Games are not about politics and, and it, it, it's strictly the IOC is strictly politically neutral. Well, of course, that's utter nonsense. <laughs> the Olympic Games are now all about politics. They have been and, for quite a while, I think, China. since the Russian boycott in the 80s, right? <laughs> Absol- no, absolutely. And, and it's getting to be more and, and more the case. And so China was sending a, a, a strong political signal um, to its both domestic and and foreign audiences of who it is choosing to run or who it chose to run in the torch relay, who it chose to to light the torch. Um, And and nations responded in kind. I mean, you know, the U.S. and other countries had already been diplomatically boycotting the games. India joined the diplomatic boycott where China, you know, chooses as as one of the torchbearers a commander uh, in, you know, a regimental commander in the in the People's Liberation Army who is who is involved um, and was badly beaten, um, survived, came out of his coma, but was involved where, where 20 Indian soldiers were, were killed in that, in that uh, battle on the, on the border. So, yeah, it's all about politics. And how seriously do you read into that? I mean, of course, China, we know, is concerned about India's ties with Western democracies. They, they talk about that strategic quad grouping alongside the U.S., Australia and Japan, which Beijing sees as an anti-China clique. Do you see that at play here or are we reading too much into it? Well, I mean, it, it, what's, what's really interesting is, you know, we've, we've had this concept of greenwashing, mm. right, in, in mm. business. And that's where a business is falsely presenting themselves as environmentally friendly when they're really, you know, very much polluting the, the, the planet. Well, now we are in an era, and it's increasing, of sports washing. Yep. Right. And so this is it could be businesses or governments at sports wash. I think it is an American Glenn will remember, uh, you know, women's tennis was sponsored by Virginia Slims, which was That's right. you know, a cigarette manufacturer. So you had <laughs> cigarettes sponsoring, you know, sports, trying to get some of that halo effect of sports for a very unhealthy product. You now have it with governments that are engaged in, in sports washing and 
Cutter in the and certainly in the 22 World Cup. Oh, ignore all the migrant workers who are, you know, building all of these facilities in under extraordinarily terrible conditions. Just we'll, we'll talk about how great we are in, in hosting in hosting the World Cup. China is is doing doing the same. Well, I mean, Newcastle United have been bought by Saudi Arabians and nobody talks about murdering journalists anymore. They talk about, yay, Champions League football guaranteed. Mm, yes, the sports mm. washing phenomenon it, is definitely here to stay. It, and MJ, Neil, just on, on the side front, it's the reason I'm wearing my, my I, AFC Richmond I can jersey see it. today. Yes. T- uh, Ted, Ted Lasso, Lasso yep. right? <laughs> had a great episode where one of, one of the, the players refused to uh, wear a jersey that had the fictional Dubai Air on it because Dubai Air was owned by this oil company that was causing economic devastation, you know, fictional, in his native Nigeria. And so he took a stand against mm. sports washing. Mm. And you're going to see that more and more. And so sports is all about politics now, you know, good and bad everywhere. Well, on that point, I wanted to ask you something quite philosophical, Steve, on this. You know, I I only realised today that Beijing has become the first city to host both the Summer and Winter Olympics. Going back, of course, to the famous Bird's Nest Stadium that was the centrepiece of the 2008 Hmm. Summer Games. What China are they getting now? How has China changed from the Summer Olympics of 2008 to the Winter Olympics of today? What China are guests and athletes arriving at today? Well, you know, Neil, I was, I don't know if you know this, I was in Beijing for the entire Olympics of, of 2008 because I worked for UPS then, and UPS was the logistics sponsor for BOCOC, you know, the Beijing Organizing Committee for the Olympic Games. And it was, people loved being there. I mean, we hosted people as UPS, our customers from all over the world. I mean, this was exciting. This was, you know, China's grand opening on the, on the, on the global stage. This was the integration of China and, and other countries to be working together. And the spirit was phenomenal and people wanted to be a part of it. And now if you kind of look at the sponsors today, um, it's, they were like, just let's hope nothing bad happens yeah, exactly. over the next you know, two weeks. Um, we had a little bit of that in 08. The two concerns were the, the, the two T's. It was, it was Tibet and Taiwan. Um, and was that going to intrude those, those political issues? Were they going to intrude in the Olympics? They did not at all. The world has changed so much. And, and if you look at what you know, Xinhua News Agency has said that said there that, that, that this is the you know the, the voice of the government. They said that by ensuring the Beijing Winter Olympics are held on schedule, it demonstrates the significant advantages of socialism with Chinese characteristics <laughs> and is a bold declaration that no force, no force can stop the Chinese people from realizing their dreams. Uh. So you would not have had that statement yeah. in two thousand and eight that you have yeah. in twenty twenty two. So just vastly vastly different and of course there's there's hardly anybody in the bird's nest like we were all packed in um on, on 8808 well they said Today, that um and we'll never forget yeah something like i think the stadium can hold eighty thousand, but there's only forty thousand people in there because every other seat has to be empty due to covid mm-hmm. um you know the the stories of the bubble are now you know quite quite well known uh, across media channels and and really nobody can talk to anybody or do anything athletes have to use the stairs they basically you know go from their room where their meals are sent down to their competitive uh, arena whatever that may be and then back again so you know in the past there was always this great fraternization um, on a lot of different levels I assure you having worked at the Olympic Village in uh, 1984 in Los Angeles uh, there a lot of fraternization going on uh, that doesn't get reported <laughs> in the media 
media. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, that that aside, you know, the, a lot of that stuff well, just well, isn't you know, happening. Just now, and it was interesting. You, the, oh wait, there's this famous picture in the opening ceremony, President George W. Bush where he went into the middle of the, of the bird's nest where all the U.S. Olympic athletes were, and they loved him, and everybody was, mm. you know, just so happy and going crazy. And then the, the visual here is Vladimir Putin alone taking a nap in the bird's <laughs> nest during the opening ceremony. <laughs> Quite a contrast. Yeah. All right, let's move on. Hey, we've just come off, of course, uh, Chinese New Year uh, around the world, and there is a, a, a bill in the U.S. Congress to make – uh, Chinese New Year, the 12th federal holiday in the U.S. Take us be, uh, to what's behind this, uh, who's, in, who's in charge, and does it have a chance of actually becoming uh, a national holiday? Well, it, it, so the, the, the bill was introduced by a Taiwanese-American member of Congress from Queens, New York, um, and, and she has 44 co-sponsors. So there's now, you know, 45 members of, of the House who would vote for this. It needs to get, you know, up into a couple hundred, you know, half of 435. So a ways to go yet. Um, but she said that, that she wanted to introduce this and make, make Lunar New Year. She didn't want to call it Chinese New Year because she wanted it to, yeah. to be a powerful message to all Asian uh, Americans, um, that, that it's an inclusion for them and that this recognition of Lunar New Year uh, would do that. I mean, look, there's a long way to go, but it's a very interesting development of, of, of where Asian Americans are in the United States, the recognition um, of their contributions and uh, for going forward. And so I think it's not going to happen federally anytime soon, but it's interesting to see. You know, New York City schools are closed. It's a school holiday in New York City. It's a school holiday in San Francisco. It's even a school holiday. I was actually shocked to learn this in Iowa City. Oh. Iowa City huh. it gives gives Lunar New Year as a, a a state as a school holiday. But you know, Steve, this isn't that surprising. The New York part because. When I visited our good friend Colin Go when he lived in New York, I went to Flushing, Queens. Hadn't been there before. Flushing, Queens now is more Chinese than Singapore. Mm. That, that is not an exaggeration. Mm. If you walk down the main street there, the shops are written in Mandarin. You know, you feel like you've walked into China, not Singapore. And it's fantastic. It's multicultural. It's good food and everything else. So, of course, New York recognizes Lunar New Year. But it's a broader question here, Steve, isn't it, that African-Americans quite rightly quite rightly, has dominated, if you like, the race narrative in terms of discussion and equality in the last 20, 30 years. And Asian Americans do feel with some with legitimacy that they have been sidelined in the national debate somewhat. And this could go some way to correcting that, couldn't it? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question in terms of like, as we Americans celebrate, you know, Martin Luther King Day is is a federal holiday. I mean, that, that is, I mean, I look at that as a federal holiday to, for all, civil rights for everybody. I mean, that, that's, that is a, that's a, a holiday recognizing who is probably the most powerful person, arguably, you could argue he's the most powerful person in the history of the United States because he, he made such a difference for our country without being ever in elective office, right? He, presidents, of course, have that opportunity uh, to shape history like Abraham Lincoln and George Washington right, and, and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, uh, but 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 King did it is is a private citizen. So it's amazing, amazing what he accomplished. And so you would argue his day is not about it's not a black holiday. It's it's an American holiday about civil rights for everybody. So I don't know that you need another holiday that that celebrates that. It, now the what's interesting about you know again it, Lunar New Year is a holiday is 
does that represent all Asians? You know, you can argue Japan doesn't celebrate mm-hmm. Lunar New Year. So mm-hmm. if you have a Lunar New Year holiday, is that really a holiday for all Asian Americans? I think that's an interesting question to ask as this um, yeah. goes along. Um, so, it, but you're seeing it, I think I would almost bet that California, it'll be a state holiday. It's not a state holiday yet in California. Certain schools are closed in California, but government's open. I think it'll start there and it could move its way across the country. Yeah. The other interesting thing, and we don't have an answer to it now, you know, what do you do about the changing dates of Lunar New Year, right? It changes every year. So all the other national holidays, it's the X day of X month. And no matter what day of the week that falls on, that's your holiday. But uh, it, it's a moving uh, target, if I can put it that way, for Lunar I, I know, New Year. The Vietnamese New Year is not necessarily the same as the Chinese New Year. Correct. There are different dates, yeah. different uh, – and you so on. Yeah. Right. Sorry, Which sorry. is why Americans would, would be, have a very difficult time with a lunar holiday because we don't have a lunar, a they, lunar yeah. public holiday. The schools can do it. Individual schools can do it. But what's interesting is Cincinnati, which is in the Super Bowl, Cincinnati has already canceled schools on the Monday after the Super Bowl. So if we can cancel schools for the Super Bowl, I think we can cancel schools for, for, for people who are celebrating being with their families. Indeed. Exactly. All right, let's move on. Speaking of being canceled, uh, the government of Myanmar is being canceled, at least as far as it coming to the ASEAN leaders uh, meeting, emergency meeting uh, in April. They are... Uh, the leaders from Myanmar are not being invited to that based on what's been happening as we've just passed the uh, the anniversary, the one-year anniversary of the coup in Myanmar. What, uh, what do we know about that, Stephen? How big of a deal is it that they're not invited? Well, I mean, we, we've been talking about Myanmar for a year, um, and we keep saying the same thing over and over and over again, right? Now we're up to 1,500 dead. Uh, you've got 12,000 that are in unlawfully in detention. God knows how many tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, have been displaced um, in in our living in, in jungles and, and barely surviving that way. So it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. You know, mm-hmm. in April, ASEAN came together with this five-point consensus that Myanmar was supposed to meet, and it never did, um, and it continues not to meet it. So you're seeing some steps here, right? Myanmar's military leader was not invited uh, to the ASEAN summit in October. Now you have the foreign minister not being invited to the to the to the upcoming foreign ministers meeting. I mean, we can so. I mean, you got to do more than that. Um, um, so it's a but, sign. But, at but least that is that a stronger. I mean, that's a far stronger position than ASEAN has taken in the past, right? I mean, this is actually quite a big a big move to actually block out one of their members. They've just they've been doing a lot of talking over the past year, but this is actually a concrete action, isn't it? Well, look, I was with you. I was a glass half full and I am now glass half empty, if mm. not glass three quarters empty. Yeah. ASEAN's got to step it up um, and it hasn't yet. Now, the U.S. is stepping it up as much as it can. Um, they have increased sanctions um, on on the military. The U.K. is increasing sanctions on the military and now on other leaders. And what's, what was interesting, and it was buried in a Reuters report that came out this week, um, there were U.S. officials here in Singapore talking to Singaporean, the Singaporean government, because Singapore is Myanmar's biggest source of foreign investment in recent years. Um, and so the U.S. is now reaching out to Singapore to discuss ways to limit the military's access to financial assets overseas. So that'll be something to watch. And I think maybe what's happening behind the scenes is much more important than what we're reading about, just not inviting some foreign minister to come to hmm. some meeting Fair enough. Uh, where nothing ever gets done anyway. 
Well, that was going to be my question, Steve. At what point does it start to hurt the Myanmarese leaders? Because clearly, as we just mentioned, we do it does get a little bit Groundhog Day on this show with mm. this subject, sadly. We talked about the emergency meeting in Asia with the ASEAN leaders in April, a whole list of demands which were pretty much rejected, if not ignored, by the current uh, leadership in Myanmar. Okay, this is, as Glenn mentions, this is a step further, but how much attention are they going to pay to this? And more importantly, at what point does it, what needs to be done now for Myanmar, for it to really start hurting the Myanmarese government? What can ASEAN do now? I mean, it's, it's got to be economic and financial sanctions. Now, sometimes the sanctions work and sometimes they don't work. Um, uh, they, you, you've got to be careful here because what you also don't want to do if you're a, a U.S. perspective, or I think even an ASEAN perspective, is push Myanmar closer and closer to China. So if you cut off Myanmar's financing right, to, the, to, the, to the military, you don't want to hurt the civilians. You don't want to push them closer to China economically. And so you've got that balancing act. But it's going to be... It's going to be economic is going to be the way that may not work. It may work. You know, sometimes sanctions work, sometimes they don't. But I think if you have a coordinated, you know, economic sanction against the military and their partners and the businesses where they're making all their money, that's going to be much more important than what's what's happening from a a, a diplomatic perspective. All right, Steve, uh, let's leave it there for now. Uh, Last topic, uh, quickly, the U.S., uh, is issuing a statement related to forced labor on Malaysian palm oil producers. The Customs and Border Protection has issued what's called a notice of finding in which it determined that palm oil derivative products produced by Syme Darby Plantation and its subsidiaries and joint ventures are using convict, forced, or indentured labor, and those products are being imported into the U.S., which is a no-no. This comes after a year-long investigation. This is a big deal. It is a big deal, and this is an example where, where economic sanctions – can work. And and the, the U.S. has hit Malaysia with seven bans in two years on forced labor. A lot of it was in the manufacturing of, you know, PPE in the, in the rubber gloves and, and companies like Top Glove had been had been sanctioned. And, and the U.S. is taking a, a strong case. And this started under the Trump administration. So this has been accelerated under the Biden administration. But this is bipartisan um, in the United States that you do not want to see forced labor being used to have goods imported into the U.S. And we talk a lot about this when it comes to Xinjiang, but it it happens everywhere. And forced labor is a massive issue in Malaysia, in part because of how many migrant workers there are there. It's 15 percent of the Malaysian workforce is migrant workers. And and so that's about two million. And then you may have up to another two to four million undocumented workers in Malaysia on top of that. And Malaysian law says you cannot engage in forced labor, yet the U.S. and, 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 and you know, rights groups find forced labor happening in Malaysia all the time. And it looks like the Malaysian government is, is going to take action to enforce its own laws more than it had in the past. So we're moving in the right direction. What role could Singapore-based businesses have in this, if any? Well, this is part of the whole ESG right effort. This is where businesses are committing um, to, to being responsible when it comes to their impact on the environment, on society, and on governance. And so if you're sourcing from any company, you need to know that what you are sourcing um, is not done with forced labor. And now forced labor can constitute many different ways. It's, it's, it's 
not paying workers uh, the, the legal wage. It's not giving workers overtime. It's making them live uh, in squalor. It's taking their passports away from them. And remember, there's millions of, of, of workers, uh, you know, foreign workers in Malaysia. You take away their passports so that they can't travel and then you can enforce all of these bad you know, labor practices against them. And so there's a lot of materials sourced in Singapore from Malaysia, sourced everywhere from Malaysia. And if the businesses are, are being honest about their ESG efforts, they need to go into their supply chain and make sure there is no forced labor in their supply chain, that the palm oil that's coming in um, being processed in Malaysia is not done with forced labor, that the, you know, the PPE coming in is not done with forced labor. And so if businesses say they're ESG compliant, the Singapore government should be holding them to the, those commitments that, and, the, and the Singapore government starting to do that. And then you can, you can have a real difference made from the businesses, not just from, from you know, Customs and Border Protection and similar agencies. Yeah, it's customer. definitely going to take a bigger effort than just uh, one agency or another um, putting down uh, the hammer on this. All right, Steve, thank you very much uh, for your time today. We have to leave it there. Steve Oaken, Senior Advisor, McClarty Associates, and our International News View. We'll see you next week. Bye, Neil. Bye, Glenn. Bye, Nora. Bye, Trisha. Bye, Jane. Bye, Poochie Ren. Bye, Aloysius. <laughs> to listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.